Hello, and welcome to the Herodotus Podcast. This is Episode 3, Myth Understandings, Book 1, Chapters 1 through 5. Last time, we looked at the opening sentence of the histories, where Herodotus names himself and identifies his purpose and his goal. In this episode, we're going to dig into the text proper, beginning with the first interactions between the Greeks and their eastern neighbors. There are two surprising things about Herodotus' discussion of these initial causes of conflict between the Greeks and Persians. The first is that it focuses on myth rather than history, and the second is that it isn't even his own account. In fact, the first authority to be given a voice in the histories isn't even Greek. Herodotus launches his work by citing the views of Persian wise men, who consider the cause of disagreement between the East and West to be a back-and-forth series of abductions of mythical women. First Io, then Europa, then Medea, and finally Helen. In order to fully appreciate what Herodotus is doing, we'll need to look briefly at the traditional myths surrounding these women. As we'll see, the accounts that Herodotus gives here differ significantly from these more familiar versions. Io In the common version of the myth, Io was the daughter of King Inachus of Argos, a city in the eastern Peloponnese, which is the large peninsula that forms the southern part of the Greek mainland. You can check out the map that illustrates the geography of this and the other myths on this episode's page at HerodotusPodcast.com. Being young and beautiful, Io caught the eye of Zeus, who seduced her. This was, to put it mildly, not out of character for the king of the gods. But complicating things ever so slightly, Io was serving as a priestess of Hera, Zeus's wife, when the god noticed her. Awkward. When Io and Zeus were about to be discovered in flagrante delicto by Hera, Zeus transformed the mortal woman into a white cow so that he could say to his suspicious wife, Cheating? What cheating? I'm just hanging out with this cow. But Hera didn't buy it. She called Zeus's bluff, replying that if it was nothing more than a cow, he wouldn't mind if she tied it to a tree and set a guard over it. She appointed Argus, an all-seeing, hundred-eyed giant, to watch over the supposed cow. Never one to let his wife win an argument, Zeus sent the god Hermes to kill Argus and steal bovine Io. Hermes was successful, but Hera had one more trick up her sleeve. She sent a gadfly to torment poor Io. Its ceaseless biting drove her away, far from Greece, into Turkey, down the Mediterranean coast, and into Egypt, where she settled and was eventually transformed back into a human. It's Io, by the way, who gives the strait separating Europe and Asia its name, the Bosporus, or Cow Crossing. Europa Another young woman whom Zeus accosted was Europa. A daughter of the Phoenician king Agenor, she was gathering flowers on the beach when Zeus spotted her. In order to approach her, he transformed himself into a beautiful white bull. Europa was, at first, afraid of the animal, but when she saw how gentle he was and how he let her hang garlands of flowers on his horns, she climbed onto his back. 
With his trap sprung, Zeus immediately sped off across the sea and took her to Crete. She later gave birth to several of Zeus's children, who became important figures in Cretan myth, most notably King Minos. Medea Part of the story of Medea is familiar from the tragedy Medea by Euripides, but the portion of her story relevant to us now took place earlier in her life. Medea was the daughter of the king of Colchis, a land far from Greece on the Black Sea, in what is today Georgia. Importantly, she was also skilled in magic. She fell in love with the Greek hero Jason when he came on his ship the Argo, along with his crew of Argonauts, to retrieve the Golden Fleece. Her father, the king, set up a number of challenges in order to thwart Jason, but he was able to overcome them all, with the help of her sorcery. Once Jason had fleece in hand, she chose to flee back to Greece with him, even though it meant estranging herself from her family forever. In some versions of the story, she even killed her own brother and dismembered him, so her father, hot in pursuit, would be forced to stop and gather up pieces of his corpse. Helen Finally, this story is likely the most familiar of the four. Paris, son of the Trojan king Priam, fell in love with Helen, the queen of Sparta and the most beautiful woman in the world. She was seduced, or perhaps abducted, stories differ, by Paris, and went with him back to Troy. When her husband Menelaus discovered that she was gone, he and his brother Agamemnon raised an enormous fleet and set sail for Troy. This, of course, was the start of the ten-year-long Trojan War. So, what do these stories all have in common? A woman, willingly or unwillingly, is taken between the East and the West, either going from East to West or West to East. We can tally up the score like a tennis match. Io goes from Argos, in Greece, to Egypt, 15 love, East. Europa goes from Phoenicia, which is to say modern-day Lebanon, to Crete, 15 all. Medea goes from Colchis to Greece, 30-15, West. Helen goes from Sparta to Troy, 30 all. However, it is not these traditional versions of the myths that Herodotus recounts, or rather that Herodotus claims that knowledgeable Persians recount. As we saw in the prologue, Herodotus offers a largely demythologized view of history, and accordingly, the versions of the stories of Io and Europa are conspicuously Zeus-free. Here's what Herodotus says about Io and how her abduction set the bad blood flowing between East and West. Knowledgeable Persians say that the Phoenicians were to blame for the feud. For after arriving at the Mediterranean, and after settling in the territory that they still occupy, they immediately began setting out on long sea voyages. They transported Egyptian and Assyrian goods and sold them in many places, including Argos. At the time, Argos was the foremost city in the land now called Greece. Upon arriving in Argos, the Phoenicians laid out their wares. On the fifth or sixth day after their arrival, when their goods had been almost entirely sold off, a number of women came to the shore, among whom was the daughter of the king, whom both the Persians and Greeks call Io, daughter of Inachus. 
As the women were standing around the stern of the ship, haggling for the items that took their fancy, the Phoenicians goaded each other into rushing them. While most of the women escaped, Io, along with some others, was seized and thrown into the ship, which then set sail for Egypt. It was in this way that the Persians, but not the Greeks, say that Io came to Egypt, and the first wrong was committed. So runs the detailed, evocative vignette about Io. Herodotus then turns to Europa, and how her abduction added fuel to the feud between the West and the East. In contrast to the story-like account of Io's abduction, Europa's fate is reported matter-of-factly, in just a couple of sentences. According to the Persian account that Herodotus relates, Europa was seized from Phoenicia by Greeks, probably Cretans. At this point, the two sides, East and West, non-Greek and Greek, stood equal, with one woman abducted apiece. Interestingly, in the versions of the Medea and Helen stories that follow, the fates of Europa and Io are explicitly mentioned, even though there's no such link in the traditional versions of these stories. After Medea was abducted, not, as in more familiar versions, leaving her homeland willingly, a herald was sent by her father to Greece to demand her return. He was rebuffed by the Greeks, who argued that since they never got any compensation for the abduction of Io, they would not let Medea return. And finally, the myth of Helen. In this version, Paris, being fully aware of this history of back-and-forth abductions, decided to head to Greece to steal a wife, namely Helen. As Paris saw it, the Greeks hadn't allowed Medea to return when asked, so he was perfectly justified in kidnapping a woman and, if you'll pardon the expression, keeping her. But of course, the abduction of Helen provoked another event entirely, the Greek invasion of Troy and the ten-year-long war to sack the city. And it is at this point that Herodotus's retelling of the Persian view of things takes a turn from the mythical to the historical. As Herodotus puts it, while up till now it was simple theft on both sides, from this point onwards the Greeks were greatly responsible, so the Persians say, for they launched an invasion of Asia before the Persians attacked Europe. Thus the seeds of the latter half of the histories, the actual historical invasions of Greece by Persian forces, are sown in its very beginning, in second-hand, unattributed speech. Note the words of those nameless Persians whom Herodotus quotes. They complain that the Greeks invaded Asia before they themselves invaded Europe. These anonymous Persian wise men explicitly consider the quasi-mythical invasion of Troy several centuries earlier as justification for their assaults on Greece, and as proof that the Persians did not act without provocation. Herodotus wraps up the Persian account with a small but important point. The Persians claim Asia, and the peoples inhabiting it as their own, and they regard the Greeks as separate from them. You may have noticed that I've been talking about the Persians as being synonymous with the, quote, East, and the Greeks with the, quote, West. However, talking about a big blob on the map called the East doesn't make a lot of historical sense. After all, the places that have stood in for the East 
in these four myths of abducted women have been quite distinct, respectively Egypt, Phoenicia, Colchis, and Troy. In myth, these places had nothing to do with each other, and not all of them would even be part of the historical Persian Empire. Herodotus puts this reductive view of geography and culture in the mouths of Persians, but it was in fact a Greek understanding of the world. Everything east of the Hellespont was traditionally regarded as Asia, and thus could be lumped together under the broad heading Eastern. As we will soon see, this boundary between Europe and Asia, between East and West, plays a highly significant role in the histories. But more on that later. Let's return to the text. Reiterating that everything we just discussed is the Persian view of the affair, Herodotus introduces another voice into the narrative, namely what the Phoenicians say about Io, a version even less mythologized than the one the Persians subscribe to. As the Phoenicians have it, Io was not abducted, but rather willingly left with the Phoenician merchants, as she had become pregnant by the ship's captain and was too ashamed to face her parents. Therefore, she fled. Herodotus the historian, or rather Herodotus the histor, now steps in, saying, These are the accounts of the Persians and the Phoenicians. For my part, I will not say that these things happened one way or another, but I know the person who first committed unjust acts against the Greeks, and so will advance my history to speak of great and small cities alike. For many states have now become small that were once great, and those that were in my time great were previously small. Knowing that good fortune for humans never lasts long, I will discuss both equally. So, what exactly is Herodotus doing here? Why start with stories that appear to be ahistorical, explicitly in versions marked as non-Greek, only to dismiss the whole explanation and reorient the narrative in an entirely different direction? I read these chapters as Herodotus's proof of concept of aspects of his historical method, a miniature compilation of several techniques he'll employ in the work that is to follow. One thing that Herodotus demonstrates in this passage is how he's going to approach the historical evidence, specifically that he will rely on different types of evidence. One type of evidence, exemplified here by tales of Persians and the Phoenicians, is oral tradition, which Herodotus later refers to as a koe, literally, things he's heard. By starting the work with non-Greek accounts, Herodotus establishes from the get-go that there will be a multiplicity of voices from a variety of backgrounds in the histories, voices that may not agree with one another, and even ones that he himself does not fully believe. Another tool on display is Herodotus' own discernment, which he later calls gnome, meaning opinion or judgment. We can see this in his concluding comments in which he asserts that he can't speak to the truthfulness of any of the stories he just reported. Furthermore, his comments demonstrate that whatever other voices Herodotus will weave into his text, his will be the ultimate authority and will have final say. The opening chapters also demonstrate the different kinds of narrative that Herodotus will employ. One style will be sweeping historical statements, 
like his opening comments on the Phoenicians, that sound like something from a textbook. Yet these statements smoothly transition into the vivid vignette of Io's capture by the Phoenician sailors, which reads much like a story. In addition to these, Herodotus will also turn to philosophical musings, as in the final part of this episode's chapters, where he briefly considers the instability of human fortune. Indeed, this mention of human fortune and its inherent variability, that, quote, good fortune for humans never lasts long, although made in passing, is significant. From the next section of the text, the episode of King Croesus of Lydia and his downfall, to the final scene of the histories way at the end of Book 9, this idea is a leitmotif, an important philosophical thread throughout the entirety of Herodotus's work. We will return to it time and again, and will have a reason to focus on it especially in relation to King Croesus. Another important concept that also undergirds the entirety of the histories is visible in the way that Herodotus presents the Persian account of myths. Even if he can't vouch for its truthfulness, Herodotus's retelling of the Persian account displays a pattern that is at the heart of how Herodotus understands the world. The back-and-forth, tit-for-tat abduction of women is the first instance of a concept that is central to the histories. That concept is tissis a Greek word that literally means repayment, but metaphorically, retribution. Tissus is not unlike karma, the idea that the universe is essentially balanced, and that one injustice will invite another back upon the original perpetrator. Classicist Donald Latiner views Tissus as a, quote, moral principle in the histories. He argues that Herodotus perceives, quote, a set of delicate and easily disturbed balances in the world, violations of which entail a cosmic restoration of balance or revenge. The tennis game between East and West is an example of the Tissus principle in action. The unjust act that each of the four myths of abducted women demonstrates is the violation of the East-West boundary that I mentioned earlier. The kidnapping of women escalates into military incursion, namely the Greek attack on Troy, which invites the Persian invasions of Greece many, many years later. Thus, the idea of distinct spheres of East and West, and the boundary between them, is a crucial part of our story, metaphorically linking the myths we've discussed here today with all the historical events that occurred later in the narrative. Next time, on the Herodotus podcast, we'll be diving into the backstory of King Croesus of Lydia, who, as Herodotus says, was truly the first Asian ruler to make war on the Greeks. As is typical of Herodotus, we're going to jump backwards several centuries, look over a mixture of myth and history, and even deal with a little magic. See you next time on the Herodotus podcast. Mm-hmm.